Hey everyone and welcome to this fourth and final episode in this special series, the Toddler Milestone Moment Series, which is created in partnership with my friends at Baby Annabelle. Baby Annabelle is the UK's number one leading nurturing doll brand and is passionate about sharing the power of role play to support with toddler milestones. We've had four incredible episodes covering everything you need to know about toddler milestones, sleep, nutrition, nursery, and siblings. A new one has been released every Monday through September. So if you haven't already, please do go and listen to the last three episodes. So many of you have been getting in touch and telling us how helpful they have been. This last episode in the series is with the brilliant Lucy Wolf. Lucy is a psychologist and sleep expert. There's a reason as mothers that we're obsessed with toddler sleep, because if it's challenging, it can impact almost every area of our lives. There is nothing harder than two-hour bedtimes. Why won't they just go to sleep? Constant nighttime wake-ups or not knowing what to do with naps. Well, don't worry, we've got you covered. In this episode, we cover all of that and more. Lucy even shares how to handle the clock changes next week. And we also discuss how doll play can support your toddler in their sleep and exactly how to do it. Before we get to the episode, I'm excited to tell you that the lovely team at Baby Annabelle have gifted me an incredible package of their dolls and accessories worth over £300. So to enter the competition to win this package, just head over to Instagram at Zoe Blasky to enter T's and C's apply. See website for more details. And here is the episode. Oh, Lucy, I'm so excited about this chat and I'm so grateful for our friends at Baby Annabelle for bringing us together to chat all things about toddler sleep. And while I was thinking about toddler sleep, I was like, my gosh, it is such a challenging time, isn't it? Because they're dropping naps. You might be wanting to get rid of a dummy or other sort of props and things like that. And you've got this transition into, you know, a big bag and taking the cot off the sides. So there's a lot going on with toddler sleep, isn't there? There's a huge amount going on because you see from two plus, there's just so much going on developmentally. Like obviously there's so much going on from birth, but you know, I think that from two plus, you know, just developmentally, that whole perspective of individuation, greater sense of self from the child's perspective. And then there's, of course, there's always these huge changes that are going on with your child's sleep maturation. When those two items meet and when this kind of greater sense of independence and self emerge and that we are then met with transitions away from napping, away from dummies into bigger beds, sometimes it can become a perfect storm. And sometimes parents will suggest, you know, a fairly reliable sleeper and then things they degrade as their child gets a little bit older. And then, of course, as you know, there'll be parents that have had various sleep challenges from early on. On. What I want parents to always know is it doesn't really matter what age your child is. There is always a gorgeous opportunity and scope to help nurture and nourish your child's sleep profile, regardless of where they're at age-wise. Well, that's very lovely. And I love those words, to nourish the scope of their sleep profile. That's, that sounds very comforting already. My nervous system likes that. <laughs> oh, amazing. We'll keep regulating each other. Dead. Yeah, we'll do some co-regulating as we go through it. There's obviously so many places that we can start, but why don't we start with, in a way, maybe what's normal? And I know that word can be tricky, but then we can go to, okay, some of the problems and the challenges that can come off that. So what can we be expecting around toddler sleep? 
I kind of like that we start that at an entry point because I tend not to use that sort of narrative because I really want to embrace individuality of your child and variability that exists. And I don't really like to shoehorn children into dynamics that have been created that may not necessarily suit your family unit. However, of course, there are appropriate amounts of sleep that a child might need in this age profile. And, you know, they have such a huge range. So for me, I don't actually count too many hours of sleep. Like I'm aware of, you know, 10, 13, 14 hours in that age range that we might need that. What I like to focus on is good quality, well-timed sleep. And I like to look at how does it feel? Does it feel right? Does your child seem well-rested? Does it feel like it works for you guys? So that we're not trying to, again, fit you into any sort of box, but as your individual family unit is maturing into this space that you feel like, does this feel right? Does our child seem like a well-rested child? Are we doing things that are help promote her sleep profile or his profile? And are there things that we could do a little bit differently that might enhance that? And I think that's how I generally approach. And what I focus on actually, Zoe, is your child's personal sleep best at the rate and the pace that feels right for everybody involved. It's music to my ears because I think it just takes the stress off things, doesn't it? As opposed to parents having this message, you toddler must sleep for 12 hours and they must be in bed by seven. That's just going to stress anyone out. So it's just so nice to hear. Like that question is so powerful for people to ask themselves, like, does my toddler seem well rested? What would that look like? Like if I think about my toddler, she's two and a half. How do I know that she's well rested and she's getting the right amount of sleep? It's a loaded question in of itself, but you know, mood and behavior is a good indicator. You know, how well your child copes. Now, that's a difficult question to ask of a toddler because they're going through so much and they get frustrated and confused by so much. But I think that we as parents have a felt sense of, you know, an irritability that comes from maybe needing a nap or maybe needing a bedtime or more sleep versus those typical challenges of, I want to put on my own shoes, but I actually haven't managed that yet. And I want to put my own arm in, but I can't do it. And I would love to have the blue bowl, but you gave me the pink bowl. You know, I think that, you know, if we just kind of, again, become really attuned, obviously there are some very obvious signs of overtired children. So some children, obviously the mood and behavior, fussy, whingy, moany, not really knowing what they want, looking to get up, looking to get back down again, very agitated. And then others may present as really kind of hyperactive almost. So I was going to say the word electrically charged because that's often how I think of them. And some get very entertaining and some get clumsy. So there's a wide range. And you'll obviously know your own child quite well in this context. And then some children will look visibly tired. You know, they'll have maybe dark circles. They'll have red rims. Their eyebrows will change color. And so they physically start to seem like maybe they're tired as well. And people often ask me, is it okay that... And then I'm like, does it feel right for you? Because I was, I obviously create, you know, levels of frameworks and boundaries where sleep is concerned. It is only that. And it's to take what resonates for you and then start to maybe make those adjustments. And look, if something is working, allow it to work within your family. But it's me as a practitioner, of course, I'm immersed in when it's not working and what we might do to nudge the needle and create what I describe as being a fertile ground and landscape to create and nourish that sleep that I mentioned earlier. So let's go there with things that might not be working. What's the most common thing that you hear that doesn't work with toddler sleep? 
And how do you start to move the needle? One of the most frequent dynamics, it's twofold really, would either be taking a long time to get to sleep at bedtime. So maybe a big resistance to bedtime. And that can have a wide range. Like some parents that I may encounter, maybe taking one to three hours just to get them to go to sleep at bedtime. And then others may say, I've got absolutely no problem getting them to go to sleep, but I have a huge issue keeping them asleep. So they wake frequently. They may be wandering around or coming into the parents' bed. They may be waking for long periods of time in the overnight. And then of course, early rising. So actually there's three things there. And I suppose it's always multidimensional, you see, and everything has, seems to have this kind of knock-on effect. So the less sleep your child gets, for whatever reason, the less they start to do without. And it's not that they don't need that sleep, but they sort of go into that fight or flight mode, for want of a better description, where they start to cope on less sleep. So then parents start to maybe think, oh, my child doesn't need as much sleep as the average bear. Okay. But they need is maybe more and then that promotes more. So it's like the opposite of a vicious cycle that parents get into. So actually, I spend a lot of time when we're trying to dilute the dynamics that I've just mentioned while reducing an overtired level because a lot of what those symptoms are representative of are an overtired level within the child's body. So I mentioned fight or flight, but actually what it really is where sleep is concerned is that the body itself, when it becomes overtired, has a chemical response. And that chemical response is cortisol and adrenaline to the system, which has just two jobs. One, it makes the body find it difficult to get to sleep, which gives you that resistance, that long drawn out. Sometimes it's called a bedtime battle. The reason I probably don't like that word is like, I don't like winners or losers or the concept of a winner or loser. So I try to equalize the playing field, but that's what gives us that bedtime resistance. But also that overtired level in the system can be one of the reasons why we see a lot of waking in the overnight period as well. So I always put a huge amount of emphasis on the circadian rhythm, the internal body clock because it has such a huge influence on your child's sleep profile and how they experience their sleep. And it's very much in your control to start to look at those sleep principles, like having a regular wake time, beginning to observe rather than overtired symptoms, but getting tired symptoms. So whilst you asked me, you know, what might it look like if your child is overtired or, you know, not getting enough sleep, starting to know what they do when they're getting tired, like maybe a brief eye rub or a brief yawn or a moment of quiet where they stop and they're a little bit still. And in this age range, you know, sometimes they go and they look for their familiar items. So they might look for their lovey, they might look for their dummy, they might bang on the fridge and look for their bottle of milk. And these sometimes can be, I'm getting ready symptoms. But very often with this age group, because they've become masters of disguise, if you like, they don't show us the symptoms. That communication has become a little bit buried. And so then all we see are those late cues. So it's trying to kind of navigate through that in a really sensitive way that's attuned to your individual child and then pick off the bits as you go. And when you talk about the rhythms and the sleep hygiene, what does that practically look like for a parent or toddler? For a family who's maybe struggling with their child's sleep, I sort of kind of take it for granted the child's overtired, okay? And as a result of that, I actually focus on early bedtimes. I reinsert naps if they've been missing for a while, if the child is willing to sleep. So, you know, somewhere between two and three, 
most young children will begin to lose their nap. Now, not all of them. And funnily enough, sometimes the statistics seem really high for children age three still napping. But let's say in this age group, there's a massive transition that goes on alongside what we've just discussed, but let's say just from a sleep perspective, but it sort of bubbles under the surface. So whilst it's a transition, it kind of takes nearly a year to kind of totally unfold. So you can sometimes observe funny changes around your child's sleep at age two that may mean that we need to do a later bedtime to maintain the nap. And then as you know, they change into like 2.4, 2.5, they may still need the nap, but we might need to give that nap less so they still go to bed with ease. And it's a, like a tricky dance that we do and it definitely unfolds over a whole year. So it can feel a little bit complicated for parents. But you know, what I would maybe suggest is, first of all, your child probably still needs a nap if they seem like they need a nap. Does that make any sense to you? So if at some point in the day, they seem like they are flagging, they're not coping without the nap. And if you took them in the car, they would sleep. Or if they don't do the nap, but they're hanging by three or four o'clock. These are really good signs that your child still needs a nap. And in this age group, especially as you're kind of working through the transition, I often just say, look, just reestablish the nap in any which way that works. Create, you know, go for a drive, lie on the couch, listen to an audio book, let them relax and see, can you just reinsert it? But I'm a big advocate of an early bedtime when I'm trying to reduce or dilute what I call the overtired tank. So try and get parents to think about it like a tank that we're going to drain. The challenge around our children's sleep is that it's never just one thing. So it's never just, let's say, the concept of sticking in an extra nap and bringing bedtime forward. Your child's sleep is multidimensional, like pretty much everything they're thinking, they're feeling, they're seeing, they're doing, they're eating, they're drinking affects their sleep. And then there's this extra piece to the sleep puzzle of how your child experiences their sleep. And if your child relies on external forces to get to sleep. And what I mean by an external force, it can be anything they don't do for themselves. So that might be drinking, even just a bottle of water. It can be the parents staying with them and holding their hand, patting their bottom, just being present. And whilst, Zoe, there's absolutely nothing wrong with those strategies, the problem with sleep is that sometimes if that input is needed at bedtime, it becomes a barrier to the child being able to cycle through their natural sleep phases in the overnight period. And this is, let's say, another huge reason why we often see struggles. And then the other thing that adds to that is that your child may be completely sleep able, as I call it, at bedtime. But as a history of night waking has been present, things that you've done overnight become ingrained and they still wake because it's about changing how you operate overnight. So that big one about, you know, your child waking, coming into your bed, either being brought into your bed or following you into your bed and that not being what parents want anymore, that's something that we have to change how we respond to that waking in an effort to, again, start to move the needle and change the expectation for the child themselves. It is so complex, isn't it? Like when you actually dive into all the factors that you've got to think about with sleep and you talk about the nap is fascinating because I just dropped Rose, my two and a half year old's nap. I'm wondering if I've done that too early because I shortened it. She was going to bed always at sort of seven, no props. And then suddenly it was like a good two week run of like 9pm, like two hours of just clearly she wasn't tired. So I was like, oh, I know what this is. She needs to drop her nap. 
drop the nap. Sure enough, like 6.30, fast asleep, sleep all night. I was like, brilliant. But sometimes I do have to keep her awake and she does nap at nursery. So I say if she looks sleepy, they'll give her a little nap. But when she's at home with me on the weekends, we don't let her nap. That's partly selfish because I want that guaranteed 7 p.m. pass out bedtime. And I'm cool with that. Like, you know, (laughs) I'm wondering, would you say that I've dropped that a bit early? It sounds like it works for you, Zoe. And it also sounds like it's kind of working for Rose in the main. What I thought you were going to say to me is that you dropped the nap. Everything was okay. The bedtime got reestablished. And then after maybe a week, three weeks, night wakings emerged. And again, that to me would say, okay, yeah, you did, you dropped it too early. And now we're getting into that overtired territory. I think if she's coping, I think that's fine. But I also feel that with a nap in that instance, I often do the later bedtime temporarily. So I kind of, that's my bubbling under the surface of how do I manage this transition? I keep the nap, I shorten it, but I might do a later bedtime temporarily until I rip the plaster off completely as you have done. It sounds to me like it's working. I'm such a fan of, does this feel right? And I did say that to you at the start and I always stand over that. And again, if it's not problematic, you know, if you were starting to say to me, she's doing this, she's doing that, she's acting after character, then we might look at that again. But, you know, you're definitely within the appropriate age range to begin that. And it sounds to me like you're doing what I call the straddle, which is sometimes we do, sometimes we don't, and we work around it. You're right. Such a powerful question, because when I tap into that instinctively, it does feel right. Had I said to you, she's night waking, what would you have suggested that I reinstate a shorter nap and make the bedtime later? Yeah, that's what I would have done. And actually, because you've ended up in tricky territory, what I would have done is reinstate the nap and keep the early bedtime that you had and see, do I need to do that first and to get back on track? And then she will start falling asleep at a certain time. Like eight, half eight is the kind of very familiar territory when we're in this zone. Okay. And so then what I do is I just start bedtime later to meet that. And then that will start happening again. So it'll last for about six weeks. It'll like mend itself for about six weeks. And then the problem will re-emerge again. And now I know, okay, I definitely need to cut the nap and do an early bedtime. And when I move into that real, I'm gone from the nap territory. I love early bedtimes. Like I love early bedtimes anyway. I think they're a huge solution to a lot of sleep challenges that parents experience. But when I go through a transition and I've finished with a nap and I've gone from having an hour or an hour and a half in the day, I might do a six o'clock bedtime for a couple of days or weeks, just as I get through Because what I'm always trying to do is I'm trying to avoid getting into an overtired cycle. Now, I'm very conscious that I do talk about overtired quite a bit. And the jury's out on where practitioners are concerned around that in terms of, you know, what's overtired, what isn't. What I'm talking really about is this overactive system. Like you mentioned, your own nervous system starting to feel relaxed as we talked. And that's what it's a little bit like. So it's about, let's say, trying to regulate, trying to honor, you know, what your child maybe is needing around that. And as a result of that, then your child seems to go into deeper, more restful sleep. Because when we're overtired, the sleep is not restful and actually the quality is impacted as well. Hard to measure any of these things with any sort of complete yardstick. But then I return to your child's mood and behavior and how it's feeling for everybody. And I think instinctively as adults, I know that I get this, that when I'm overtired and I haven't had enough rest, that is when I'm most likely to faff about at bedtime. And sometimes I'll find myself on social media at like 11. My normal bedtime is 9.30. And I'm like, 
what on earth am I doing? I can feel my resistance to going to sleep. And it's because I'm overtired. So I've got too much adrenaline and cortisol in my body. So I think most of us as adults instinctively get that. It's then just applying it to little ones. And of course, it's not our body. So we have to be a bit more intuitive and attuned. That's it, you see. And then I think with this age group, like I like the idea of looking for the buy-in from the child. Like, so I'm looking for their investment in their, I described as sleep happiness. So, you know, we get to the stage where they're verbal, they're interactive, they're understanding. And you want cooperation and collaboration and co-creation with them around their experience of sleep. Because as they go into the rest of their lifespan, you do want them to have a really healthy relationship with sleep. You don't want them to have this belligerent relationship with sleep that maybe some of us adults have that, you know, bedtime was seen as, you know, a very stark separation from the family. It may have felt like it was a punishment for some that, you know, it was bedtime and that's it. No more communication. And what I really think parents at this age group are in a gorgeous opportunity is getting, I call it like a marketing exercise and how we sell sleep to our young children and how they are building that in. Very similarly, it's the way that we're, you know, creating healthy diets and activities that we build that into the narrative. And how do we do that with our young children? We sell it to them and we explain everything to them and we get their input. And I do this in a number of different ways, but one of the ways that I love to do it is actually with doll play and role play, where we begin to simulate bedtime processes, bedtime routines, and we use baby Annabelle, for example, for this activity. So you've got your loving doll to nurture and love, and then they are in simulating bedtime routines and using similar words and phrases. And then we do similarly with them when it's their bedtime. It's almost like that muscle memory, isn't it? We're talking a bit about nervous systems. Like that's how the system learns. It's like doing it before it's for real. And I think it's so powerful. What does a good, quote unquote, bedtime routine look like for you? Because gosh, with my six-year-old, I have got one of those like two hour, 20 point. I don't know how we've got to this point. It's actually fine, but it's definitely long. Whereas with Rose, my two and a half you know, it feels way better. It's like, boom, 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 boom. So what are some of the components that you would want to put into that routine? I definitely feel that there are some really good characteristics of certain, like not all bedtime routines are created equal, if that makes any sense to you. So I suppose, whilst I really don't like the shoulds and the oughts and the have-tos, however, I do think that there are certain things where bedtime is concerned that are really helpful for both the parent and the child. So we're talking about relationship all of the time. We're talking about your relationship with your child. You're talking about your child's relationship with their sleep and your relationship with their sleep. We're trying to make that really deep and nourishing for everybody involved. And so to do that, I love the steps, you know, like that it's logical and linear and that every part of your bedtime process leads to I'm going to go to sleep at the end of this. And again, if I was going to frame that, I would suggest that, first of all, we do that practice of the bedtime. You know, we start to get familiar with the language around it. And like I say, I think the doll play is a good idea around that. And then I look at how can we create a really good environment for your child's sleep and their sleep experience. So I think we need to look at the bedroom that's dark enough, warm enough. And they're familiar with it, that their child has spent time during the day playing in their room, that this is a place that they have fostered good feelings, associations and a friendship with the bedroom itself. And then using that, I think, 
first of all, a bedtime routine ideally happens in the bedroom that your child is actually going to sleep in. So a lot of families do what I call a, and I, this is a horrible description, actually, the more I say it out loud is, but I call it a broken bedtime routine that maybe you start it downstairs and then you go up and have a bath and you come back downstairs and then we ultimately go upstairs. What I prefer is when I talk about logical and linear, I mean, it looks maybe a little bit like this. A, it's well-timed. So it's time before your child is overtired. If you're any bit worried about your child being overtired and you're not 100% sure, I always begin being quite prescriptive. And I decide that, look, if we have no naps anymore, I might have the dinner around the 5, 5.30 mark. I might have drinks all over by about 6 or 6.15. And I might aim to be in the bedroom having had the bath if you're doing one by 6.30. And I just begin as a launch pad of this is probably quite close to the biological timekeeping for this age group when they're no longer napping. And then I feel like a bedtime routine is about 20 minutes in duration. It can be longer. It absolutely can. But I feel longer than 40, 45 minutes kind of breaks the spell of what you're looking for. And funnily enough, I don't include the bath as being part of your bedtime routine. So whilst I understand lots of parents will be doing one, I don't feel it's a prerequisite. I don't always feel it is a relaxing exercise. I don't either feel necessarily, and I've got four children, so I suppose a talk from experience. It's not something I want to do every night with, with all of my children. Now, I don't need to anymore. They're older. But my point is, I try not to make recommendations that I may not have committed to myself, if that makes any sense to you. However, I'm a big fan of hygiene. But the point is, the bedtime routine is where we go into the bedroom and we begin that gorgeous connection and wind down. And I, again, I think with this particular age group, I would always recommend that maybe we have in the bedroom a space within which to get ready for sleep. I call it a bedtime zone because I like to create a distinction between getting ready for sleep and my bed is for sleep. So they're two separate entities. Whereas if we do the bedtime routine in the bed itself, and then we finish our stories. Sometimes there's no beginning, middle and end to that. And then that can make it more challenging for a parent to not stay with their child when they're going to sleep because the lines are blurred. So again, what I'm trying to do is just lead always towards a higher sleep ability. So in the bedroom, at least 20 minutes, low lighting and connection. So once we're in our pajamas and I nearly do everything to do with their sleep in the bedroom. So once we're out of the bath, into the bedroom and into the space that we created. And then of course, we get them dressed with their help and then, of course, we might read books. You might also do another bedtime routine with baby Annabelle and help her get ready for bed simultaneously as you're getting your child's body ready for sleep. And then we might tuck baby Annabelle into her sweet dreams crib. And then we begin the ending of our bedtime routine. So I like the idea that your bedtime routine has a beginning, which is maybe getting ready, and then a middle which is the connection and the engagement. And then an ending where we begin winding up maybe with a ritual. I love you ritual chatting. I love the idea of, you know, discussing with your child when they're able, you know, two things that you love doing today, three things that you're looking forward to tomorrow. So we kind of wind it up. And then at the end of the bedtime routine, and sometimes I might even indicate the end of the bedtime routine by a lamp on a timer, which indicates this is the end of that piece. And then I escort them to their bed, climb into their bed. And then this is time for maybe lights out at sleep time. And then you walk out of the room. Well, it depends on what your child needs from you. So if that is what you've established, yes. But if that isn't what you've established, then this is where I actually introduce my stay and support approach, because there are children that will maybe be relying on the parent to get themselves to sleep. 
like I've mentioned already, there's nothing wrong with that. However, for some that might create a barrier to how they experience the rest of the night. And if that's the case for you, then I would then begin to maybe start to gradually phase myself out. So I do loads of support, but I don't lie in the bed. I always sit beside the bed. So I create that as a starting point. Again, there's lots of dynamics to the stay and support approach, which allows the parent to be really available physically, emotionally. I distract them if they're upset. I'm always talking with them, but I'm not maybe getting into big dialogue with them. So I might develop a phrase like it's sleep time, Rose, I love you, rather than starting when they start saying, what's that noise? And then they're looking for you to start talking to them. I would be saying, it's sleep time now, I love you. So that you're always responding, but you're kind of closing it down a little bit. And you see, in this particular age group, of course, they may become upset, but more often than not, they do what I call maggoty behavior, which is like legs up the wall, legs out the bed, want a blanket, don't want a tissue, want a tissue, have a pain. It's that sort of behavior. And it's just trying to stay with yourself and with them and not kind of fuel that, but still be very responsive to them, which of course, like any parenting dilemma is a challenge. But, you know, I'm always recommending that we would hug to calm and be available to them. And you see, once that starts to become more established than the stay and support approach. It's staged based. So you start to move further away so that over maybe the course of two to three weeks, now you can do your bedtime routine and leave them in the bed and they're happy for you to do so. But of course, it's a mastery for both of you, both the child and the parent. And it's this call back for more stuff that happens with this age group because they know that they can. And it's about trying to maybe diminish the expectations that I try to have no drinks around sleep because they can impact how your child experiences their sleep. So let's say I might have drinks finished in the evening time in the kitchen, get them to put their cup into the dishwasher and say goodnight to it. And then when they're asking for it, I may say the kitchen is closed. Do you remember you put it to sleep? So that we're always in talking to them about what's happening and that we're helping create a consistent predictability around how they experience their sleep. I like the idea that it's a loving framework. Of course, it always will be. But you know, we're all at the end of our day when we get to that point, even though we might have a couple more hours before we get to bedtime, we've put in a full day's work. No matter who or what you're doing, you'll have put in a full day's work and more so. Okay, so it can be hard to stay with yourself when those requests start coming in. So I always know that like I can sit here, of course I can and say, you know, explain lovingly to put it into the sink, say goodnight to your child. It doesn't play out like that. My own children don't play out like that. But it's just trying to foster an understanding that, you know, if your child asks for a drink or a tissue, you're never denying, you're not going to deny them. But you have to understand that there's this kind of feedback loop that goes on with things that we do where sleep is concerned that, you know, if they ask for a drink and you give it and then the next night you won't give it and then the row happens and then you say no four times and then you ultimately give it. Now we're getting into this kind of intermittent reinforced expectation behavior and we're in difficult territory because then our children then start to kind of navigate through that and we get into this sort of loggerheads dynamic. So it's trying to foster a sort of environment where the emotional temperature, because we're always talking about, let's say, the temperature of the room, the environment, let the emotional temperature as well is quite stable and that you can be 
firm in how you're delivering things, but also loving at the same time, but predictable and responsive. And that's why I kind of say develop that sentence like it's sleep time, Rose, I love you. I'm here. I love you. But we're not going to go down this avenue of a million things that you're looking for tonight. But also I think that if during the day your child is constantly looking for things and you always give them and at the bedtime is the only time that you say no, then of course you're going to find things difficult there as well because there's an echo of how we're responding. Like, And I am that parent. Like, I mean, I put this in context. My oldest is 19 and my youngest is 11. So I've trod the boards. Okay. And I'm beyond it. I'm in a different phase, but I always kind of remember that like, you know, I'd be like, put on your shoes, put on your shoes, put on your shoes, don't put on your shoes, put on my handbag. Let's just go. And then the next day I can't get them to put on their coat because I didn't go there. I didn't stay with that. And you know, it's a little bit like that with sleep really easily, you know? And I suppose, look, I'm a big fan of picking our battles, even though I don't really want a battle, but I just want to pick the, what can I commit to? What will they understand? Am I delivering in such a way that everyone is feeling like they're still connected at this end of the day. I think that's one of the hardest things about this bedtime bit is whether you're working outside the home or you're working in the home. Typically, if you're a parent by 7, 8 p.m., you're absolutely knackered. And my nerves are like, at the, you know, I've done the second shift. I've finished work. I've cooked, you know, oh, and then it's like the bedtime gymnastics begin. It's very hard, isn't it? Have you got any tips and tools for the parents? Like we've talked about nervous system. There's some lovely breathing, isn't there? You can do to calm yourself. What else would you recommend? I often call that time the competition of needs time because everybody needs something at that time. And you're one of the people that needs it. And I think that, you know... Of course, I would always try and stay grounded, but I actually think it's how we are throughout the course of the day with ourselves, the relationship within ourselves that we're nurturing and we're having that loving self-compassion for ourselves all of the time or whenever possible. And of course, there's slip in and out of that, of course, that we are. But, you know, it's about kind of giving yourself permission and it's also about forgiving yourself when things haven't gone amazing for you and sharing the load, helping to feel like it's a cooperation rather than a situation where everyone is vying for something and no one's got enough to give. I think that a lot of that is to do with how you are in yourself a lot of the time. And of course, you're going to do your breathing exercise, but none of us are going to meditate when you're at bedtime and everybody's looking for a little bit of extra something from you. I'm realistic around that. But I think, again, we're looking at bedtime, but we're looking at what happens all of the time, you know, how we wake, how we are, how we're operating throughout the course of the day. And that doesn't just apply with what we're doing with our child, it's what we're doing with ourselves as well. And that means being kind to ourselves and taking those breaks. And I'm not talking about at bedtime, but I'm talking that, you know, having those opportunities in the day, like I spent my mothering journey feeling like I had to be always on my feet and I always had to be busy and that I could never sit down and relax. I had ingested that from my early experiences of my own family of origin. And so this persona of busyness. And really, it's like a protective strategy for us coping. And it actually is doing us as individuals such a disservice. So again, the house is never going to be to the standard that you want it to be, even if you haven't got a standard. Like, And I think that, you know, I did a post on Instagram this morning just to remind parents 10 years ago, I had a nine-year-old, a seven-year-old, a five-year-old, and a one-and-a-half-year-old. Today, they are obviously 10 years older. Three of them are out of jobs you know, three of them have gone off to work this morning to do their various summer jobs. 
I went to breakfast with one of them and it was gorgeous. And that's the other side of it. But of course, it takes so much time to get to that point. It takes so many difficult evenings and nights and everything that comes with us. And I suppose just being kind and loving to yourself as best as you possibly can be and creating opportunities to say, what would be a good time out for me as the parent and filling my own loving cup? It's so important so that by the time we get to that bedtime, we've got a little bit left to give. And then I think, you know, if we have a sort of system within, you know, if it's fairly regular every night, there are no surprises for your children. I mean, I used to joke that my kids used to look surprised every time I said, let's put on your pajamas, like as if we'd never said it before. Okay. But I think that if we always do it this way, that we don't deviate hugely because that sort of rhythm, that kind of predictability, that ritual, if we can ingrain that, there are no surprises. It's very predictable. And our children will willingly go with something that is really familiar. And it's about creating that level of familiarity that comes with everything you know with sitting up to eating your dinner at the table and every aspect of it and I suppose just be loving around how you're experiencing it and think of it always from your child's perspective as well and again you mentioned there about you've maybe finished work you've done your second shift you've done the dinner and then we're going to bed and your child is like hey but I didn't spend enough time with you today and then I just think about that it's the quality of the connection in the evening time it doesn't matter how long it's about the quality of the time and I suppose look dig deep. It's a really challenging time, this age range. But, and I know you don't want me to be going on about it, but it passes and soon bedtimes become self-directed and soon you become obsolete like me. And I suppose there's a sadness attached to that too, but there's also a gladness attached to that. And I suppose we're just there. We're on our journey. And I often think of it as a parenting journey. It's an adventure as well. And I wanted to ask you about something that's very real for me at the moment from a practical perspective, which is when do you know it's time to get a toddler out of a cot and into a bed? Because I've just done this with Rose. How do we know? And what are some of the challenges that come come with that? I have very specific kind of guidance around this because I'm always at the cold face of troubleshooting. So for me, if at all possible, I try and avoid the transition to the big bed until perhaps I have the rule of threes, okay? And it is this. I love the idea that your child is older than three, okay? Because developmentally, we know that they are able to maybe process the information and not only process the information, but see it through. So impulse control to ask you to do something and maybe you're able to do it. Whereas often before two and a half or three, I ask them to do it. They understand what I've said, but they can't necessarily see it through. For example, stay in the garden, don't go out the gate, hold my hand, don't touch the hot surface. That skill starts to manifest closer to two and a half, three. So again, I might then say, stay in your bed, don't get out, is more manageable for a slightly older child. So I like the idea that they might be over three. I also like the idea that maybe they're nap free. Okay, so I've no more naps. So now I don't need to worry about trying to wrestle them into a bed in the middle of the day. And I also like the idea that maybe they're nappy free. And the reason behind that is now I really know you've got that instruction and you can see it through. You've learned how to wait. So if I said to you, wait, I'm going to go away. I'm going to go to the bathroom. I'm going to come back and check on you. I know that they've learned that skill because they've toilet trained as well. That's my ideal setting because then I feel it can be a much smoother transition. However, I'm aware of so many things that happen. One of the big ones is, you know, leaping out of the cot or becoming unsafe around the cot. However, for me as a practitioner, 
I get curious about why they're leaping out of the cot. So rather than saying, okay, it's not safe anymore, I might be thinking, why are you not staying in the cot? Why do you keep getting out of the cot? I might think of it along those lines. And if they're not matching my three scenario, I might say, can I help them to feel more comfortable at the cot? One of the big reasons kids jump out of the cot is that they're put into the cot already asleep. And so when they wake in the cot after being transferred, they get a bit of a fright, if you like, and then they leap out. It's more to that than that, but that can be one of the reasons. So I get curious about why are you now all of a sudden not happy to stay in the cot? Because most of the cots are big enough for the biggest child because they're cot or they're cot beds, you know, they can be transferred. So if you've bought a standard cot, even for the biggest child, they generally are. And I suppose, let's say you've made the transition. I then think it's more challenging to keep a younger child in the bed than it is an older child because they have that impulse control that we talked about. But it's still possible. I've had clients and children as young as 17 and 18 months learn to sleep in a bed and stay in the bed. But I will always say to parents, it's much trickier. It's much, much trickier because look, they're mobile and there's so many variables and safety comes into play where being in a bed is concerned as well as throwing themselves out of the cot. So again, look, it's a game of balance. It's a game of assessment and a curiosity. But if they don't match that criteria, I might stay with them and teach them how to be in the cot one more time. And I might say, is the trying to get out of the cot, is it because I didn't spend enough time on the bedtime routine? Have I changed something? What could I do differently here that would keep, still keep them in the cot and let them feel safe in the cot as well? And then I get to the end where I can't do that anymore. And I suppose looking at that bedtime routine where I keep the bed and the bedtime routine separate from each other. So I've got my area. So that's a distinct area. And I often build in visual cues. I mentioned briefly earlier a lamp on a timer. So I often use something like that that indicates the end of my bedtime routine. Or sometimes and I cleaned up sort of before we started, so I can't reach it now, but I usually have on my desk a sand timer, like a bigger sand timer. And I might use that again to show me this is the end of the bedtime routine. So again, I'm creating these visual cues and I'm giving ownership of that to the child and I'm not doing something to them. And I suppose then into the bed and then I might use my stay and support approach both at bedtime And then the key with the child who's getting out of the bed overnight, if you don't want them sleeping in your bed, then I escort them back to their bed. I really encourage a high level of independence, like climbing into bed myself, pulling the covers up myself so that they're doing things for themselves that they need to do in this context. And then I stay with them, but I don't get into the bed with them because I'm trying to the bed to look like this is the place that you sleep and only your body, it's sacred. So my head and my body never go into your bed. If that's the direction you're going in, does that make any sense to you? It does. I think, see, with little Rose, we took the sides down because she never actually climbed out, but I noticed that she looked like she could. And I also thought that she was ready for it. And she's never got out overnight. It's just when I'm putting her down, she's then giggling and I can hear these little feet pitter-pattering. But what I'm doing, you tell me if this is right, I'm just sort of picking her up and saying, Rose, it's bedtime. Very loving. I'm not shouting. And then putting her back. Last night, I had to do that about 10 times and then she stayed in and went to sleep. The only way I might adjust that is I don't pick up. I escort them back. And I often talk about, let's say, like kind of taking them by the elbow and kind of, because this is going to sound a little bit funny, but sometimes the pickup validates the fact you got out because it's like a hug. 
if that makes any sense to you. And of course, I'm trying to reduce the 10 times down to maybe one or two if I can help it. So when they get up, I kind of herd them back is a word I sometimes use. Now, everything's in a loving framework and I know that you can hear that. And then I escort them back. And, and, you know, during the day, I might start saying to Rose, you know, when the lights go out, you know what I want you to do? I need to stay in your bed. And, you know, sometimes, and again, I don't know where she's at developmentally in terms of comprehension, but sometimes I say, there's an invisible line. Let's not cross it in terms of just engaging her in that to kind of say, this is what's what I'm hoping for. And you see, I believe you have an older child as well. And I do find an early transition works a little bit better when you have an older child because they've been exposed to your older child in a bed and how that works as well. And I suppose, look, it'll all settle down anyway. It's just that obviously the speed with which it could settle down would be great because, of course, we're talking about that competition of needs at the end of the day where maybe, I know you mentioned that maybe bedtime takes a bit longer with one of the girls, but that could be time spent for you. And that's that filling cup piece, you see, where that we sometimes try to move towards. But look, it's about trying to balance it all out. And I know there'll be people listening who are in a bed really successfully, much younger than what I'm suggesting. But just remembering that I'm typically looking at troubleshooting. And when I'm troubleshooting sleep specifically, I probably don't put them into a bed. I try to address the sleep issues first and then let that transition. Because you don't want that transition to happen when anything else is going on. So if I was going to do a bed transition for no other real reason, I don't want to do it around a time that I'm toilet training. I don't want to do it around a time where I'm starting preschool. I don't want to do it around the time, you know, a month either side of a new baby arriving because I know that any change I make is going to invoke something, some emotional response and change to how we're experiencing it. Yeah. Exactly. And I love that. Just thinking about it in context of all the other things going on. I want to ask you one more troubleshooting, which is clocks changing. So we've just got everything sorted and then the bloody clocks change. (laughs) I try not to worry about it too much, even though the October one where we go back is probably the hardest one because it's the one that might leave you with early rising. It's just hard. If this is the hard one, this is the one. But I suppose there is a couple of ways of managing it. First of all, I always say this, don't worry about it. Like genuinely don't worry about it. It's got to happen. It does happen. I think at some point we did have, I think it was going to change, but then the pandemic kind of sorted that out, that it's not going to change for a while. But basically don't worry about it because it has to happen. It's going to happen and we'll work through it like we do with every challenge. There's a few things that I recommend. If you're overly concerned and you've had a poor experience previously, then work in advance of the time change. So on the Wednesday of that long weekend or the weekend that it's going to happen, like it'll be the end of October, you could just do bedtime later by 15 minutes each night with the hope that by the time you get to Sunday, when the clocks go back, you match the new time, for example. So that's one way of managing it. But then you've got to remember to move everything, like all your feed times, your et cetera, et cetera. But that's one way of, if you're concerned. The other item that I do is I just do nothing until the day of the time change. I love this way. This is what I would have done in my household. And on the day of the time change, I hover between the old time and the new time. So I split the difference, basically. Okay, I split the difference. And I know that, look, I'm going to have a week where it's going to all be a little bit off. And then within a week or so, it's going to settle itself down and it will do. What I then just encourage is that by the time we get to about Wednesday, I always kind of have a sort of guide where I treat any waking before 6am as night time. And of course, by the Wednesday, any waking before 6am new time, whatever it is, I know now I'm getting confused because I'm out of season now, right? But just by Wednesday or so, anything before 6 new time is nighttime. 
And anything after that, I get up and I start the day because you'll have been doing that time slightly differently at the different times. And we just expect it to kind of settle down over the course of the time. And then the other option is that you do nothing at all at all and you just let it take care of itself. And I suppose when parents do that, they're very, very comfortable and they know that their child is very adaptable as well. So I take the first two options otherwise. That's so helpful. And I particularly love that you're like, let's not stress about it too much. There's enough stress going on in our lives. Oh, I just so many things in our lives. And that's how I feel, you see. And I guess, you know, one of the things, because I know obviously sleep is a deeply emotive issue for parents. There's lots of different schools of thought. And also when we're sleep deprived, just by being parents for no other reason, everything feels difficult and we can be more negatively inclined in our thinking pattern. It's just a time in our lives where things are a little bit more difficult. And I'm just like, let's just not make things more difficult than they need to be. Of course, there are certain things that I really do promote. But most of all, I just want families to feel, first of all, they're doing a great, amazing, valuable, important, unmeasurable job. And everything is a season and it changes in such a way. And the main thing is that as we go through the lifespan, we're teaching our kids to feel loved, safe, secure, belonging, and that they feel seen and heard by us. And after that, it's everything else. Oh, that's beautiful. That felt like a little manifesto that I just want every parent to hear. I always ask the same question at the end of every episode, which is if you could give just one gift to all the mothers in the world, what would that one gift be and why? Oh, they already have it. Okay. They already have it. And that is to listen to your intuition, your internal wisdom, and to remember that. So I suppose the gift would be to remind yourself that you actually have all of the answers, you know, and your baby has all the answers, you have all the answers. And in cooperation and co-creation with them, everything is there. It's just about trying to sometimes decode it. And it can sometimes feel difficult to do that. And I think that, you know, it's not unusual to hear professionals say to trust your instincts and then in the next breath to tell them look you're wrong and I think that it's trying to say look I firmly believe that we have all the answers but we often need support around what feels right for us because sure we've never done it before we've received very little training around what we're doing here as parents and it's just about to be having gifting to yourself you don't need me to gift you anything you really don't but just to gift to yourself that kindness and that listening to yourself and to not override what feels right for you so when you hear things that resonate so you know we talk a lot about an evidence base don't we and I talk about an evidence base and practice and form but for me resonance is the evidence and for you then if that feels right to just be gifting that to yourself that's probably not what people answer you because you're really gifting something but anyway that's how I would feel about maybe what might be given to mums it's beautiful and I think it's so true and often what we need from experts like you is that permission and confidence isn't it like you said parents say to you is it okay that and I hear like what you're really amazing at saying yeah if it works for you so I just absolutely loved this thank you so much it's been an absolute joy and a pleasure and I I think you're really going to reassure and help a lot of parents so thank you thank you so much Zoe it's been an absolute absolute pleasure 
Well, that was it. The fourth and final episode in the Toddler Milestone Moment series created in partnership with Baby Annabelle. I hope you loved the episode and I hope you have loved the series. If you haven't, please do go back and listen to the other three episodes that we've done on nutrition, nursery and siblings. And I hope you've also loved learning just about how powerful doll play can be. A reminder, if you want to start practicing more doll play at home, you you can win a bundle of up to £300 worth of baby Annabelle dolls and accessories. Just head over to my Instagram to enter at Zoe Blasky. I hope you have loved this series as much as I have loved making it. Please do go back and listen to any you might have missed. And we will be back next week on Monday with our Mother Kind Moments 